This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now, your host, Andrew Foyce. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on the Federal News Network. My name is Andy Foyce, your host for this show, and I'm the chair of the Administrative Conference, which everyone calls ACUS. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Peter, hello. Good to see you again. Hey, Andy. Always great to be with you. Yeah, thank you, Peter. ACUS is an independent federal agency in the executive branch, the mission of which is basically to help the government work better. And we do that specifically by focusing on improving administrative procedures and processes. This episode will take us between the lines of an issue of importance to those federal agencies and the tens of millions of Americans and businesses who are subject to enforcement adjudication by those agencies every year. The issue centers around a legal case presently pending before the United States Supreme Court called SEC Securities and Exchange Commission versus Jarcusy. Many believe that this case has the potential to significantly change how administrative agencies handle adjudications. Battle lines have been drawn between those who support a vigorous uh, regulatory uh, state and strength of administrative agencies and those who believe that uh, the administrative state has gotten too strong and powerful and it's the time to rein it in a little bit. There will be bonus coverage at the uh, end in the fourth segment when we consider yet another landmark case in administrative law that the court will be deciding this year called Corner Post versus Board of Governors. In this case, the court will determine when Americans can go to court to sue administrative agencies to seek redress from actions taken by those agencies that have harmed them. We will discuss both of these cases with two administrative law experts and will consider the important constitutional issues they raise and the effects they may have on federal administrative agencies. As always, it is important to remember that any opinions or positions expressed by your host or by any of the guests cannot be attributed to ACUS as an official position. So let's get to it. The credentials of our two guests uh, who we'll have with us for the entire hour are so impressive that they make most other lawyers embarrassed by comparison. Peter, I know you looked them up on Google. Aren't they amazingly impressive? Yeah, absolutely, Andy. You know, I always like looking up the backgrounds of the people you're going to have on the show. And in this case, you got a couple of top-notch educators from two of the best law schools in America who know the topic. It should be an interesting and informative discussion. Yeah, you bet. I'm looking forward to it. We are very lucky to be joined by Kate Shaw, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Prior to that, she'd been a professor at the Cardoso School of Law. Professor Shaw was a Supreme Court clerk and served in the White House Counsel's Office under President Obama. She is also a um, co-host of a legal podcast called Strict Scrutiny, which I recommend to everyone. She is currently also a voting member of ACUS. Thank you for joining us, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, also with us is Christopher Walker, a professor of law at the University of Michigan, and before that at the Ohio State University College of Law. He is a nationally recognized expert in administrative law, regulation, and law and policy at the agency level. He has worked in all three branches of the federal government, as well as in private practice. And like Kate, he also clerked for a Supreme Court justice. Chris is a longtime friend of ACUS, who now serves us as a senior fellow. 
Chris, first, congratulations on the Michigan Football Championship, and uh, uh, welcome to Between the Lines. Awesome. Great to be here. Chris, let's start with you, and and I want to start at the big picture level so that everyone understands uh, what we're talking about here with this case. Can you tell us what is enforcement and what is adjudication? When we think about the federal judiciary, we, we tend to focus on those 800 or so judges that the president nominates and the Senate confirms. Millions of dollars are spent on campaigns to get them confirmed and, and the like. And, and that's where we really focus a lot of our popular attention. But if we really care about judging at the federal level, we're going to want to care about the more than 13,000 agency adjudicators that hear millions of cases a year from immigration and social security to patent rights. That's where the work happens at the federal level when it comes to judging. Uh, and so when I kind of tell my students, you know, a case like this case, like Jarkissi that we're going to talk about on, on this episode, really does go to the heart of judging at the federal level. So that's the adjudication front. Think a hearing before an administrative law judge or an immigration judge or another type. They have, they have various different titles. And how this works out is paired with that adjudication in a lot of agencies, you have these enforcement powers. So in the immigration court system, you have the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, that is dealing with the inflow of non-citizens to the United States. Uh, in the case we're looking at today, we're talking about the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that commission has an enforcement side that goes after publicly traded companies and traders and others that are involved in the market uh, that aren't following the rules. Uh, and this is a way to make sure when you have a, a regulatory scheme uh, that the rules are followed and that people don't get an unfair advantage uh, in the marketplace. And do all agencies uh, have the same procedures? Do they do it the same way, or, or does it vary agency to agency? It varies agency to agency. I mean, the Administrative Procedure Act sets the default rules for, like, the standard approach to agency adjudication enforcement. But Congress has departed from those uh, in every single context, at least in some degree, because every context is different uh, and needs different sets of procedures. And then, of course, the agency has great leeway. Uh, to structure how they regulate uh, you know, at the street level. Okay, Kate, let me um, ask you, please, to uh, tell us the story of uh, the Jarkissi case. What did Mr. Jarkissi do, or what did the SEC allege that he did, and uh, what did the agency uh, try to do about it? Sure thing. And maybe before I talk about Jarkissi specifically, I'll focus a little bit about on the SEC scheme. Um, as Chris was just walking through, there is, you know, a huge variety in terms of how Congress has empowered agencies to enforce various laws and then the way agencies go about doing that. So the scheme at issue here is the Securities and Exchange Commission's scheme, congressionally created scheme for enforcing the securities laws. And in general, if the SEC thinks that there has been some violation of the securities laws, it can pursue that violation in two ways, or at least like two ways as relevant here. And again, these go to the sort of two paths that Chris was talking about. Um, so it can bring civil actions in federal district court. It can ask for penalties and injunctions and things like that. And it can also institute administrative enforcement proceedings inside the agency. And also they're seeking civil penalties and orders and other kinds of remedies. OK, so those are the two enforcement routes that the SEC has kind of at its disposal. Now to come specifically to Mr. Jarkissi. Um, So Jarkissi had two hedge funds and an advisory firm that advised those funds. And the SEC basically alleged that Jarkissi and his entities violated the securities laws and committed securities fraud in a number of ways that they had. So the allegation was that they're that Jarkissi had represented having a prominent investment firm as a prime broker, when in fact that was not true, and also that there had been misrepresentation of investment strategies and overvaluation of holdings. 
So those were the allegations, and the SEC pursued these claims against Jarkissi before an administrative law judge in the SEC. And that ALJ and the SEC as a body found that he did violate the securities laws. So after that finding, he sought, as he was entitled to, review in the Fifth Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court, and that's the next place the case went. And from there to the Supreme Court? And there to the Supreme Court, but I feel like it might be worth stopping to pause at the Fifth Circuit first because that was, you know, a really, really significant, sweeping, sprawling opinion considering and siding with Mr. Jarkissi on three distinct sets of constitutional claims, each of which alleged that the enforcement scheme that I just described was unconstitutional. Um, and again, each of which prevailed. So the Fifth Circuit actually found three, not one, not two, but three distinct reasons that the scheme that gave rise to these proceedings and findings against Mr. Jarkissi was unconstitutional. Okay, so let's pick up right on that. The issues raised in his appeal, both to the Fifth Circuit and then the SEC's appeal to the Supreme Court. There are three um, issues, as you suggested, Kate. And Chris, speak uh, to the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial issue. So under the Seventh Amendment, an individual in a civil case has the right to a jury in certain circumstances. And so here, Darkesy is arguing that this case had to have been brought in federal court uh, before a jury and that it couldn't have been brought in an agency adjudication. Okay, thank you. And we'll get into all these issues in more depth in the next segment. Kate, what are the uh, other two issues that we'll be talking about? Sure thing. Two more. So one, there's an argument that the scheme that I described that gives the SEC the choice to proceed either in administrative enforcement or in federal court violates the non-delegation doctrine, essentially the idea that Congress cannot delegate to an administrative agency legislative power. Um, and then the last of these has to do with the way the ALJs in the argument of Mr. Jarkissi are essentially insulated from political accountability and that essentially that tenure protections and removal protections that ALJs enjoy are inconsistent with the president's authority under Article 2 to control the execution of the law. Um, so broadly speaking, those are the other two arguments, as Chris alluded to. The first definitely got the most airtime in the Supreme Court, um, but I think there's more to say about all of them. Okay, well, we will uh, look in, in depth, in greater depth at all three of these issues, but we have to take a quick break now. And when we get back, we'll hear more on this topic. And uh, just to remind you, you're listening to Between the Lines on the Federal News Network. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, you're listening to Between the Lines on the Federal News Network. And we're talking about uh, a Supreme Court case pending right now called the United States v. Jarkissi that raises a lot of important issues for administrative law. Just before we broke, we uh, had highlighted the three uh, main issues that the courts have been considering that Mr. Jarkissi raised. And uh, now I'd like to get into them in greater depth. So, uh, Chris, let's turn back to you to uh, talk about the Seventh Amendment issue. Yeah. So as Kate mentioned, she was summarizing the case, uh, Jarkissi, the SEC, through an in-house adjudication, imposed a large fine, a uh, civil penalty against uh, Mr. Jarkissi for his violations of securities law, particularly his fraud on the market. And, and so in response to that, when he got to the Fifth Circuit, he argued that this violated the Seventh Amendment civil jury trial right. And the Seventh Amendment tells us that it suits in common law where the amount of controversy is more than $20, that an individual has a right to a jury, that that's not something that Congress or anyone else can take away from that individual. Uh, so you kind of see from that argument, it's more than $20. That's not a dispute. And so the harder question, is this a suit of common law? And the Supreme Court precedent on this is really complicated. 
but the basic idea here is that the court looks and says, is this type of action or this type of, is it something that would have existed at the common law? And the government says, so the government argues that this is uh, not a suit of common law, that this was created by statute and that Congress had expressly recognized a new type of civil penalty. Uh, the scienter requirement's different. It's actually less. Uh, and the agency can bring it. It's not just brought by individuals. And so this is just different. And, and Congress has the ability in a regulatory scheme like the Securities Act to allow for civil penalties like this. And Mr. Garcasi, in response, says, no, 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 this is the same. It's just an ordinary common law fraud claim that would have existed at the founding. There may be some differences, sure, but the fact that you don't have to prove scienter actually should make it worse because Congress has watered down a common law claim. And so that's kind of the, the back and forth. I will just note here, at oral argument, at least in my kind of view, we didn't focus much on the jury rights. The court seemed to be really fixated on Article Three judicial power. And these two concepts overlap. Uh, it seemed to be asking more, is this a public right or a private right? And if it's a public right, uh, then it can be perfectly done in an adjudication. Like there's no Seventh Amendment jury trial issue or Article Three uh, judicial power issue. But if it's a private right, it gets a lot more complicated. And I, I don't know if like, he has reactions to that, but that was definitely one of the kind of confusing parts if you listen to our argument, uh, that it seems to actually not really go along the lines that were argued at the circuit. Yeah. And maybe Andy, could I, could I jump in for a second? Um, of course. Yeah, I totally agree with that description. And I think Chris is right that, you know, we framed at the outset and the case was framed as involving, among other issues, the Seventh Amendment issue, right? Whether under the Seventh Amendment, Mr. Jarkozy had a right to a jury. But commingled with that were other not standalone Seventh Amendment questions, but Article Three questions about the nature of the judicial power and also maybe due process questions about whether an agency proceeding like this one that doesn't have all of the protections that an Article Three tribunal confers is sufficient to satisfy the constitutional requirements of due process. So those are related but distinct claims or arguments. And then maybe it's worth, I'm sure we'll talk more about this case, but uh, sort of throwing into the mix the case that definitely came up the most at oral argument, which was the Atlas Roofing case from 1977. And that's a case that involved actually pretty similar arguments to this one. So basically, there was an enforcement challenge brought by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, which was seeking fines against some company for violations of the you know, Occupational Safety and Health Act. And the regulated party that was subject to the enforcement action basically brought claims similar to Mr. Jarkozy's that we were entitled, they said, to a hearing in a federal court before a jury under the Seventh Amendment. And there the court said, again, against a Seventh Amendment challenge, no, that it is absolutely permissible for a claim like this, where there's a new statutory scheme that creates some enforcement mechanism for the federal government, it's fine to allow that kind of enforcement to happen inside an administrative tribunal rather than in a federal court, even where there might be some similarities between the nature of the you know, allegations brought by the agency. So the OSHA violations bore some similarity to common law negligence claims against, say, employers for negligence. But that was not enough to basically invalidate the scheme and require a jury under the Seventh Amendment. And so certainly for the government, the Atlas Roofing case basically resolves this dispute in favor of the government and against Mr. Jarkissi. But as I'm sure we'll get into, it's not clear what the court is going to make of Atlas Roofing, if it's going to try some work around, if it's going to overrule it outright, or simply, you know, note that it has been abandoned by subsequent developments. Um, but that, I think, is an important case to kind of get on the table early on. Okay, thank you. Um, Kate, why don't we stay with you for the last two issues, starting with the uh, non-delegation issue. Uh, take us a little deeper into that, please. 
So the second of these issues is, as I alluded to before the break, the idea that this scheme that allows the SEC to choose whether to bring cases in the SEC or in federal court, you know, essentially represents an unconstitutional delegation of authority to the SEC, that it gives the agency too much power to decide whether to bring this case before an agency or in court. And the theory on display in this case, I think, is different in maybe some significant respects from the way the non-delegation doctrine has been understood. Um, And maybe I'll just lay a little bit of groundwork here. So, you know, the non-delegation doctrine, basically the idea that Congress can't delegate legislative power to administrative agencies. And often that's understood as, you know, or I guess there's lots of different ways to understand it, but that there are limits essentially to Congress's ability to delegate to agencies and whether those limits have to do with the amount of specificity or precision that Congress needs to attach to its delegations or whether there are kind of categorical limitations to the kind of power agencies can get from Congress. I'm sure Chris, well, maybe Chris doesn't struggle with this. I certainly struggle to help my students understand what it means, what legislative power, what the thing that Congress can't delegate is, what that consists of, because the Supreme Court has been you know, far from clear about this. And there's a very active scholarly debate about the historical support of this idea of a non-delegation doctrine. So Chris's Michigan colleagues, Nick Bagley and Julian Mortensen, have authored you know, a very powerful historical debunking of the non-delegation doctrine. Um, there are scholars like Elon Werman who take the opposite position, who argue that the non-delegation doctrine is very firmly rooted in history. Um, but to kind of bracket that for a minute and, and sort of just to ask about how the non-delegation doctrine has fared in practice, you know, it's understood as administrative law students will know that the, in reality, this idea of the non-delegation doctrine really had one good year in 1935, in which the court concluded that several pieces of New Deal legislation violated the doctrine. But after that, it really wasn't subject to much serious enforcement by courts, although there were scattered opinions, mostly concurrences and dissents that occasionally referenced it. Um, but there does seem to be a significant revival effort underway. And the most important evidence of that is the 2019 decision in Gundy, not the majority opinion or the plurality opinion by Justice Kagan, but a very influential dissent by Justice Gorsuch that really urged a return to a vigorous enforcement of a non-delegation doctrine. So that's essentially the background. So we are in this moment of potential real revival of the non-delegation doctrine. And so I think that litigants who are following these developments closely have begun mounting non-delegation challenges. But what I think is a little bit difficult about the argument here, maybe why the court didn't evidence much interest in it at the oral argument, is that what this scheme gives the SEC the power to do is simply to choose between two paths, right, to bring a case in federal court or to bring a case in the agency. And even Justice Gorsuch in his dissent in Gundy, in which he urged this rigorous you know, enforcement of a non-delegation doctrine, seemed comfortable with the idea that Congress can basically allow agencies to kind of prescribe some consequences from the finding of certain conditions being satisfied and essentially telling the SEC, you could bring this claim in the agency or you could bring this claim in federal court and you can decide which to do it. That seems difficult to square with an understanding of even a Justice Gorsuch understanding of a non-delegation doctrine. So that I thought was in some ways the shakiest part of the Court of Appeals opinion. And once again, there really wasn't even a single question about it at the Supreme Court. And unless I'm forgetting one, there definitely was one Article Two question, but it certainly wasn't something that any of the justices seemed to demonstrate any real interest in taking up. I agree with Kate on this. This is a, it's a kind of a, a little bit of a fringe argument <laughs> of this. I, I did a, a deeper dive into how this argument even got there. And if you look at the Fifth Circuit in the briefing, uh, Mr. Jarkissi didn't actually raise this argument in his brief. His argument was Congress can't delegate away the jury right. And the government's response was, well, yeah, of course, if that's true, you're right. But that's not a non-delegation issue. That's that's a Seventh Amendment issue. And so it was actually even briefed very well before the Fifth Circuit. 
Wow. But the Fifth Circuit panel ran with it and did kind of, as Kate was saying, like Congress had to provide some sort of guidance on whether the agency can bring this to federal court or keep it in-house. And that would be a really dramatic reshaping of the administrative state, as Kate mentioned, because we allow Congress gives agencies a lot of discretion when it comes to structuring their procedures for exercising their enforcement powers. Uh, and so it would be a really, really kind of a big, big, big change. The court had to take all three of these questions, though, because if not, the SEC scheme is unconstitutional. So, I mean, it's not some folks would write into this. Oh, they took this question. They must be interested in it. But they have to, I mean, they have to decide these questions. And so I think that's why we ended up with all three before the court. Okay. Well, we're going to have to stop right there for a minute. And when we come back, we'll talk about the third issue, the constitutionality of uh, the appointment of administrative law judges. You're listening to Between the Lines on the Federal News Network. Stay tuned, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. This is Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference. We're talking with law professors Kate Shaw and Chris Walker uh, about issues important to uh, administrative law in a particular case pending before the United States Supreme Court. When we left before the break, we were talking a little bit more in depth about the three main issues that the case implicates, and we were about to talk about uh, the appointment of administrative law judges. Kate, can you take us a little more deeply into that issue, please? Sure. And I'd characterize this as about both appointment and potential removal of administrative law judges, but really about ALJs and whether, as presently constituted, they are constitutional, right? It's a big kind of existential question in many ways. So a little bit of background here, too. We have a series of cases developing a principle, and these cases stretch back to, I would say, like the century-old Myers versus United States, although, you know, the debates implicated stretch back to the founding. Um, But Myers is this 1926 case that has a lot of language in it about the importance of presidential control over most, if not all, actors within the executive branch. And control is understood as maybe not limited to, but as importantly involving the president's authority to remove subordinate officials um, and remove them at will, remove them without constraint, either the requirement that the Senate say consent to the removal of a postmaster, which was the issue in Myers, or as other cases have raised, control or limitations on presidential removal imposed through statutory restrictions, things like good cause protections. So the principle sort of, you know, is announced in Myers, it feels like it's cut back less than a decade later in the Humphreys executor case where for cause removal protections are permitted in the context of commissioners on the FTC. So we've had these kind of two lines in some tension ever since. But in more recent cases, um, and I would identify Free Enterprise Fund, Sela Law, Collins versus Yellen, um, these are cases that basically find, seem to essentially revive this kind of real presidentialist rhetoric and logic of Myers and find that only narrow exceptions to the idea that the president needs to be able to remove at will all executive officers will be permitted and are kind of tolerable under Article 2. Okay, so that's a big sort of broad background. And then you have as to administrative law judges or ALJs specifically, not a removal question yet, but a question of the status of ALJs. So in the Lucia case. I'm not sure if you guys pronounce this case differently. I feel like a lot of people, there's many pronunciations on offer. But Lucia um, is a case actually involving SEC ALJs. And that case finds that ALJs are officers of the United States. And so that means that they need to be appointed consistent with the appointments clause. Um, And that case sort of followed on the court's 
view directly from the Freitag case, um, but essentially found that ALJs could not be appointed as normal employees are, you know, pursuant to a regular kind of application and HR kind of governed employment process, but actually an appointments clause compliant process where appointment is made, you know, for principal officers directly by the president with Senate confirmation, but for inferior officers, either by the president alone or a head of department or a court of law. And that, you know, occasioned a lot of reappointment of ALJs to align ALJ appointment practice with the appointments clause. And typically that involves just appointment by the head of the agency. Okay, so we know that ALJs are officers of the United States, but the question here is essentially whether some of the layers of insulation from presidential removals that ALJs enjoy can be squared with this idea of the importance of presidential control. Um, and so you here you have ALJs subject to discipline or removal by the Merit Systems Protection Board or the MSPB. Um, and so ALJs themselves have removal protections and the MSPB members have removal protections under some circumstances, the SEC itself can directly control discipline or remove ALJs. The SEC commissioners also have protection from for cause removal. And so these multiple layers of insulation from presidential control in the eyes of the Fifth Circuit, and this was Mr. Jarkissi's argument, was simply impermissible under Article 2, given the background and, and principles that I just walked through. Okay, thank you. Uh, both of you have talked about the oral arguments at the Supreme Court, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about that and the fact that many observers found it to be uh, a little bit surprising. What questions were asked, what issues were covered, and uh, what did you think about the oral arguments, Chris? Well, as, as Kate kind of hinted to earlier, the court focused entirely on the first question, uh, the question of whether uh, the Seventh Amendment requires a jury trial, whether the agency has to go to federal court instead of uh, have an in-house adjudication of a civil penalty. And that, I think, surprised a lot of us. I, I, I didn't think the non-delegation doctrine question would get much airtime. And I think the fact that there were like, you got no airtime kind of reinforces that. But the last question on the dual air removal for administrative law judges is a really, 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 really important question. And it's one that I think at least the logic of free enterprise fund, one of the prior cases that Kate mentioned, like, I think the logic of it follows to administrative law judges. So you have like Judge Rao on the D.C. Circuit in the dissent saying administrative law judges can't have dual removal at the Department of Agriculture. You have the Fifth Circuit kind of saying this as well. You have a bunch of district courts reaching a similar conclusion. And so I think most of us thought you'd see some airtime uh, on that question. I think there are ways to distinguish adjudication from other types of uh, functions within the executive branch, although I think the logic of free enterprise fund is really hard to escape. Uh, so instead, they spent the entire time talking about, is this a public right or private right? What do we do with Atlas roofing? You didn't ask us to overrule Atlas roofing. Who, you know, why are, you know, and, you know, and a couple of the themes that kind of came out that I think are interesting, at least for more or a more kind of popular audience is, you know, there's, there's this intuition that, like, if you're going to impose a million dollar fine on an individual, you should have a jury decide that, right? I mean, that's kind of one of those like intuitions that you had. On the flip side, what's not contested is that the SEC can bar you from the market or can delist your company uh, through an in-house adjudication. And like no one thinks a jury is required for that. And so it's, it's interesting to kind of think through and the court was really struggling with, you know, with, you know, how do we draw these lines and can we create a precedent and maybe I'm reading too much into this and Kate will disagree with me. I think a majority of the court was trying to say, can we create a precedent that only applies to this particular statutory scheme for civil penalties 
and won't apply to any others. And so you definitely saw the justices also try to kind of explore, are there limiting principles here uh, where we can do a, a narrower decision that doesn't kind of disrupt all of agency adjudication or even all civil penalty statutes, uh, but really just really zeroed in on this one. Kate, what are your thoughts on the oral arguments? Yeah, I was just thinking about what Chris said. I, I, I think that intuition is right, that the court is clearly troubled by what it perceives as unfairness. And I think it's right what you said earlier, Chris, that the sort of is that really a Seventh Amendment intuition or or, or claim or is it some combination of Article three and due process in the Seventh Amendment? I'm not entirely sure. But I do think that a majority of the justices were troubled by what we can still broadly call the Seventh Amendment argument. But also, I'm not sure they were interested, at least in this case, in wildly disrupting a lot of agency procedures. And so, Andy, I'm sure you noticed that ACUS got a shout out in the oral argument um, and Brian Fletcher for the federal government was um, essentially trying to suggest that shifting all of these administrative cases into the federal courts would be wildly disruptive and cited a 1992 ACUS report in which Fletcher said that the federal government counted 200 statutes that would be potentially affected by, you know, affirming, and I I presume just on on the first question, um, and then said, you know, we very quickly got to two dozen agencies that have the authority to impose penalties in administrative proceedings. Um, and, And Fletcher really did say, I don't want you justices to think that you can just issue a ruling that is going to be a ticket that is only good for a ride at the SEC because it is so hard to distinguish what the SEC does from what a lot of other agencies do in a principled way. And I think that, Chris, what you were postulating is interesting. So equitable remedies of other sorts versus actual fines, could you draw a distinction along those lines? I don't think it's impossible, but that feels pretty legislative to me. So for a court to, to write an opinion in, an, in a principled way that doesn't feel like it is just crossing over into actually rewriting a statute is hard for me to imagine. But then it's also the case that in Arthrex, the court seemed willing to do some what felt like pretty aggressive, you know, remedial gymnastics that essentially looked like rewriting a statute. So I don't think it is, you know, without recent precedent for the Supreme Court to stretch, you know, uh, at least a remedial order in ways that, that seem to potentially cross over into lawmaking. And it's not impossible to see that here if they're inclined to rule against the SEC, but would like to blunt the force of a ruling that might have real ripple effects throughout the administrative state. And do you mind if I just said something real quick? Or... Yeah, uh, 30 seconds. Yeah, so just to build on that last point that Kate mentioned, David Zarin and I have argued that you know one way that Congress and the agency could fix this is to allow for a right to remove. Um, in other words, to allow for the individual in the SEC adjudication when they get notice that there's a civil fine, they go to federal court. Uh, we also suggest maybe the Supreme Court could do that. I'm pretty textualist. It makes me uncomfortable. But as Kate mentioned, I don't think it's that dissimilar from what the court did in Arthrex when it rewrote the statute and allowed for agency head uh, review of those decisions. And so I was happy to see that argument get a little bit of airtime um, at, at oral argument. But I don't know. I, I, I would expect a really narrow decision here. Okay, it's time for another break. And uh, when we get back, uh, we will talk about some of the potential effects of various decisions from the Supreme Court and put our uh, two experts on the spot uh, and ask them for a prediction on on what is going to get at least five votes. You're listening to Between the Lines on the Federal News Network. Uh, Stay right there. Thank you for coming back to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference on the Federal News Network. We are talking with law professors Kate Shaw and Chris Walker about the Jarkissi Supreme Court case. And we were about to um, wrap this up with effects and predictions. 
Chris, you said that you think this will be a, a, a narrow opinion. A, a lot of people are putting a lot of um, weight on this opinion, saying that it could be the end of the administrative state's ability to enforce regulations, and it's the end of the world from people who support a strong, vigorous administrative agency power and others who are saying just the opposite. We're hoping this will be will really chip down the administrative state. What do you think? What would be the potential effects of some of the possible holdings? Yeah. When I say narrow, I mean narrow in the sense that they'll just limit it to this statutory scheme. This is a statutory scheme. The SEC has long had the ability to oppose civil penalties by going to federal court. But in Dodd-Frank, the Dodd-Frank Act is when the Congress gave the agency the power to actually impose these civil penalties inside the agency through agency adjudication. So that's really what's at stake. Now, Congress didn't just do that for fun. You know, they, they realized that going to federal court and the Justice Department just makes it much harder from a resource perspective uh, to, to bring uh, civil penalty actions against those who are violating securities laws. And so... They wanted to be able to get easier and be able to have it so they could go through an expert administrative law judge and process these types of civil penalties much more quickly. So I do think that even if they even if we just have a narrow holding that just applies to the SEC civil penalties statute here, it's still going to have dramatic effects to how the SEC works. In fact, we already see that the SEC isn't bringing civil penalty actions anymore in light of all this litigation within the agency. Uh, they're going to federal court, and David Zarian and others have looked at this and. They're just not bringing many at all. Uh, and so I think one of the kind of the end games of the challengers to this system is to make the cost so high for these types of proceedings that the SEC just says it's just not worth it. We're going to use our resources on other things. And that's pretty bad if you're a participant in a market and there are people in the market that are violating securities laws and there's not going to be a mechanism for the agency to go after them. Kate, what would be the effect on the non-delegation doctrine and the appointment and removal of ALJs, uh, depending on how the court rules? Yeah, I think that when the Fifth Circuit handed down its decision, that's, I think, when you had a lot of justifiable kind of hair on fire rhetoric about what this decision could portend for the administrative state and its future. Um, And I think that the fact that the argument was so focused on the Seventh Amendment has assuaged some of those concerns about an opinion that would have really seismic effects. Um, And I do think that if the court affirmed on either of the other two grounds, either embrace this really novel non-delegation theory, um, that could, I think, throw into question many, many congressional delegations to agencies. Um, And also on the ALJ uh, independence slash Article 2 issue, I was very nervous about what some of the logic of the Fifth Circuit would mean for honestly, the civil service, right? So civil servants are, you know, not officers of the United States as Supreme Court doctrine understands them, although scholars like Jen Mascott have suggested that we have underappreciated how broad a category that really is. And Justice Thomas and uh, I think Justice Gorsuch have signaled some sympathy for that. So I wouldn't say that that is beyond dispute, but even, but, you know, whatever the future of that question is, I think that there's a, you know, civil servants are of course protected from, you know, at will removal by the president. And it would be, you know, you can't sort of overstate how destabilizing it would be for that to be drawn into serious question. And so, so I was very nervous about both of those. And I think the Seventh Amendment argument for the for securities law enforcement um, is quite serious and could, depending on how the opinion is written, have implications for other agencies. But I no longer think we should conceive of Jarkasi as an opinion that has the possibility, after, again, the oral argument, of totally undercutting large swaths of you know, the enforcement action that happens in the administrative state. I think that that's not likely to happen here. Okay. Well, you're starting to um, foreshadow my next question, which is to put you on the spot and ask you for predictions. So let me ask you about not only um, what the substance of the ruling will be, but uh, what the vote will be and, and who you think will uh, be on each side. 
Chris, let's start with you. Predictions are like the worst part of any type of. Um, I, I want to just flag on the administrative law judge dual removal. If the court reaches that, they're going to they're going to have to at some point. If they do hold that administrative law judges have to be removable at will, as the government argues, or at least removable for cause by the agency head, as Darkesy argues, and we're going to have a dramatic reworking of agency adjudication. I mean, that, then if you're before an adjudicator, we're talking again about. 13,000 adjudicators, right? Not just the five of them that are at the SEC. I fairly wonder, is this judge actually you know, finding facts and, and, and making a decision based on the law and the facts? Or are they doing it because they're worried about being fired or otherwise yeah. demoted? Or And I think it really would throw into chaos how we do those adjudications. So that's a really big deal. Uh, but my prediction is, and I kind of already hinted this throughout the show, is I think they're just going to, um, find it unconstitutional under the Seventh Amendment, and it'll be very narrow in the sense that it'll only apply to this civil penalty statute. And the court's going to try very, very, very hard to make it not look like the Atlas Roofing OSHA civil penalty statute or the other dozens of civil penalty statutes that are out there. Is that going to stop the lawsuits against those other ones? Of course not. Like, can you write an opinion that's limiting? I'm skeptical. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, I, I do think we're going to continue to see these challenges brought against all civil penalty statutes. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see more than six votes for that. Um, mm. uh, because I do think if this this feels like something that someone like Justice Kagan might be willing to, to stomach in order to av- avoid kind of the Armageddon questions that Kagan mentioned before. Yeah. And if I could just respond to that quickly, I think it's good to take a moment to say, you know, even in light of to the ALJ kind of um, appointment removal issue, uh, even putting aside my sort of civil service concerns, it, there really are, despite the cases like Free Enterprise Fund and some of the lower courts' conclusion that, you know, ALJs have to be removable at will, like following ineluctably from cases like Free Enterprise Fund, at least that have the, you know, the two layers of removal, uh, maybe a single layer is fine, but, but not the double. I think it's really important to appreciate that there are meaningful distinctions between what ALJs do and what other kinds of government officials do. And so it's not necessarily the case that it is a direct, you know, it's straight line from a public company accounting oversight board or the head of an agency like the CFPB, you know, it being really problematic to cloak them in some kind of insulation from presidential control. We adjudicators in our constitutional tradition are supposed to enjoy a degree of independence from political leadership, and that is by design. And so this would, I think, raise different questions than some of those cases. And I'm glad, Chris, that you brought that up. And I'm sorry I don't have a vote count for you, Andy, but I do think that the Seventh Amendment, that Jarkozy is likely to prevail, and I think it's right they'll try to write something narrow, and I think it's right they will struggle to do that in ways that won't invite immediate follow-on challenges that could expand the logic here. But I think that a narrow, maybe, yeah, six or seven justice win for Jarkasi is how I would likely call it. And I think it's right that Kagan, I mean, this isn't on the Seventh Amendment, this is on Lucia, but, you know, she has joined her more conservative colleagues in some of these administrative law cases, although she has been, you know, very, very opposed to some of what they've done in cases like Sela Law. Um, so I think it's in- entirely possible that you could see some sort of coalition that's not necessarily the predictable ideological divide here. Well, thank you for going out on the limb a little bit with the predictions. Appreciate that. And it's hard to count votes on the Supreme Court just based on briefs and arguments. So thank you for that. And uh, we've got one other case pending before the Supreme Court in the administrative law field that raises a significant issue for uh, litigation of claims. And it's called Corner Post versus Board of Governors. Kate, can you tell us, uh, first of all, who those people are and what the issue at stake in the case is? 
Sure. So the case is generally about how long parties have to challenge at least administrative agency regulations. So here it's a case about regulations as opposed to adjudication, which we were just talking about. Um, and the background rule is that absent some other statutory period, APA challenges have to be brought within six years of the claim accruing. And the federal government says, and it has basically always been understood that that period begins when the agency issues the regulation. But he- here you have challenges who say the period begins when the regulation affects them. So the rule in question here is a Fed rule involving fees charged in connection with the use of debit cards. That's a 2010 rulemaking. And the plaintiff here, Corner Post, is a truck stop and convenience store in North Dakota that incorporated in 2017, so seven years later. But they say we weren't affected by this rule until 2017. And so that's when the six-year period starts. And if they prevail, that could open up a broad swath of existing regulations to challenges that have not been previously understood as as capable of being brought after the six-year period closes. So quite consequential sleeper case, I would say, on the court's already pretty crowded administrative law docket. Chris, anything to add real quick? No, I mean, I think it's a super nerdy case. Um, I mean, these are about facial challenges. You can still challenge a regulation when it's applied to you in an enforcement proceeding. And as Kate mentioned, I think if your adjudication is kind of a weird context where, of course, you can challenge when you're being adjudicated. Uh, so this is really more about those facial challenges uh, and, and the like. I will say that the briefing's kind of fun. Um, I love the public citizen brief supporting the government's position. And there's a brief by um, Adisha Bamzai and John Duffy based somewhat on an ACUS uh, study they're doing, although not taking a position on behalf of ACUS. I think ACUS probably wouldn't take that position, uh, arguing uh, in favor of corner posts. And so you have these kind of uh, kind of original understandings of, is this a statute of limitations? Adisha and John argue that this feels like a statute of repose. Um, I think public citizen does a great job of kind of saying, if this isn't what Congress meant to allow it to be a statute of repose, like it's only the first six years after a regulation is, is, is promulgated, that's going to introduce a lot of chaos into the system in a way that Congress just wouldn't have intended. So I agree entirely, Kate. It's a sleeper case. I'm not sure how big of a deal it is. Um, it's probably a bigger deal than the attention it's getting. But I also think, you know, lots of companies challenge these once you get to the enforcement stage. Okay. Uh, and that's not an issue in this case at all. Uh, this is just, can you bring a facial challenge after six years beyond the six-year period of when the regulation was promulgated. Okay. Well, we have to stop here. We've run out of time. Many thanks to Professors Shaw and Walker for sharing their thoughts on these important cases. And we'll all be watching the Supreme Court uh, very carefully to um, see what these decisions are, along with the Chevron case that we've talked about uh, in previous episodes. And we're looking for those opinions uh, sometime in June. And in coming months, we'll explore other current topics of interest in administrative law and procedure. If you're looking for more information on ACUS and its work, go to our brand new website that we've just rolled out here in the beginning of March at ACUS.gov. For now, thanks for listening, everyone. On behalf of the guests, Peter and myself, I hope we pass the audition. You've been listening to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.